I should find this passage of scripture in my Bible before I start talking. I trust a number of you have had this experience uh, in your walk with the Lord, but meeting, spending time with a brand new believer who's coming to God's word and thinking about the Lordship of Christ for like the very first time, spending time with such a brother or sister is incredibly encouraging and wonderful Um, because they see, well, for many reasons, but one reason is that they see things in God's word, and they inquire about things that perhaps those of us who've followed Christ for a long time have found ways to minimize or explain away. So I was, I was recently meeting with someone who had, in his own Bible reading, come across these words of Jesus in John chapter 12, where he says that whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, And this this guy said something to the effect of, he asked me essentially, like, what what does that actually look like to do that? Because it seems like most of the Christians that I know seem to enjoy and have all the same things of this world that my unbelieving friends and family members do. Now, you get a question like that and immediately maybe you start, well, you know, let me clarify for you. You might not understand exactly what Jesus means by that. It's not a statement like we're supposed to be living as hermits and, you know, detesting all earthly pleasures. And we could find some other passages in the Bible where it speaks about how God gave us things to enjoy. And that's all well and good. But at the same time, like maybe he's onto something actually. Maybe, maybe we have gotten so familiar and so comfortable with Jesus and with the pretty radical nature of Christian discipleship, maybe we've gotten so familiar with that that some of that first love and first zeal that we had has diminished and has been cooled by a little bit of worldliness that we've not even realized has crept in. I'm not saying I know that's true of you. I'm just saying that as I began to read and reread the passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning, I thought about that danger in my own heart. Uh, And I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 so that we can begin to look at this passage together. We have been studying uh, in Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn there, if if, if you don't have a Bible with you, you could grab one that's underneath the seat's. Uh, There in front of you, it's found, the reading is found on page 911 of those Bibles provided. We've been looking for a few weeks at this one paragraph at the end of Acts chapter 2 that provides for us uh, a snapshot of what life was like in the early church right after that amazing day. We just sang of the Holy Spirit breathing new life upon us, and that was a prayer. Well, in Acts 2, we read about the Holy Spirit breathing new life upon a whole community of believers on the very first day when the Holy Spirit was poured out to his people. And, and we're walking through this paragraph slowly so that we can savor the heavenly taste of what the Spirit produces in those of us who have repented and believed and been joined together in that brotherly love that uh, befits us as the family of God. Uh, We've spent four weeks 
thinking about verse 42 and that devotion that the apostles, uh, that, the, that the believers had to the apostles' teaching and to uh, the fellowship and to uh, the Lord's Supper, to remembering the, the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. And, and now we continue on to study this paragraph. Uh, I'm going to read, I'll, I'll pick up in verse 42 and read through verse 47. Uh, before I read it, though, let me ask for the Lord's help because we are needy. We are poor and we are needy, and we will not see and learn from God's word what we should if we don't have his help. So let's look to him for that help. Father, we thank you. We thank you for being able to gather to worship you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its encouragement, for its admonitions, and we pray that you would use your word now uh, by your spirit, that you would conform us more to the likeness of Jesus, and that we would glorify you as we've sung in all that we do, that we might reflect Christ. May it be so for your sake and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now again, we've spent some weeks on verse 42. As we begin to look at verse 43, it seems as though there was a sense in which even the unbelieving Jews around Jerusalem at this time, that's how I understand at least the, the phrase every soul. I, I think this maybe not every single human being literally, but there was a great sense amongst not just the Christians, but I think even the unbelieving people around Jerusalem at this time, a sense of awe, like, whoa, what, what's going on here with this community of people following this Jesus person? What's going on? There was something amazing. There was something awe-inspiring about the life they were sharing together. I, I suspect that this awe in verse 43 had something to do with what we're told about in verse 47, that the Lord was adding day by day more people to the number of the saints. And so actually, I, I, I'm going to say more about this awe and about the wonders and signs being performed by the apostles. I'm going to do that next week when we talk about verses 46 and 47. This morning, I want to think with you about another awesome feature of this spirit-indwelt family, and that is the awesome generosity that we see marking them. I think that is part of what was producing awe amongst every soul was not just the signs and the wonders, but the way these people loved each other, especially in their generosity towards one another. And it may be, it may be these couple of verses that we can just find a way as we keep living the Christian life to explain away and think this is maybe something for somebody else. That was nice back then, but surely today, 
Ah, no, we can explain that away. Where a new believer says, hey, what's, what's going on here? All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Uh, two observations, two points that I think we need to consider together as we think about those couple of verses in particular. Uh, number one, point number one, it's the, it's the title of the sermon, Awesome Generosity. Point number two, Awesome Jesus. That could be the title for every sermon. Awesome Generosity and then Awesome Jesus. So for these disciples, it says there in verse 44, they were together. And it's a little bit of an unusual phrase in the, the Greek language. It's, it's three little Greek words. I don't know a whole lot of Greek, but I can read commentators who know Greek, and they tell me these things. Um, the, woodenly, the way you would translate this, and none of the translations do because it, you'll, you'll hear why, it's literally uh, all who believed were of the same. They were of the same. And, and so the idea seems to be stressing the physical togetherness of the believers there, but also I think it's capturing the spirit of unity and love, what the Apostle Paul would say in his letter to the Ephesians, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that marked the life of God's people. They were of the same. Uh, Luke would say it a little bit differently two chapters later in chapter 4, Verse 32, he said, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. I think that's what's being conveyed here in chapter 2 uh, when it says they were together. The prayer that Jesus himself had prayed that is recorded in John chapter 17, right before his death on the cross, when he prayed that his people would be one, it was already just a few weeks later, it was beginning to be answered by these believers in Jerusalem. The disciples were tasting this sweet joy of, of dwelling together in unity where the bonds of peace and of acceptance and love are the fruit of his presence among us. And is it not awesome to behold? I know that's a word. That word awesome gets thrown around sometimes. This is one of the things that Dan Bowers has impressed upon my heart is that you better be careful about how you use the word awesome. Dan is so angry with me right now that I just mentioned it by name in the sermon. <laughs> I love you. Um, he, it is, hey, we can throw out like some awesome, you know, pizza. Like, we might want to think about how we use the word awesome. I'm not condemning you if you had some awesome pizza last night or whatever, but... But this is really awesome stuff here. 3,000 people so bound together in love that it says, when any had a need, these brothers and sisters got to work. What can we sell? What can, how can I simplify? What assets of mine could be liquidated to make sure my brother or my sister in need has the provision that they need? Nobody among this congregation was clutching to the right of their own stuff. Just go back to verse 32 again, actually. Uh, chapter four, 4, that is. A complimentary passage here. And I've, it's probably not going to be me who's preaching it when we get to chapter 4. So Jason will probably be doing that, so I'm stealing what I can now. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. 
that, it, it, it needs to be said, the obligatory this is not communism line in a sermon on this passage. We're not talking about some communist vision. It was their stuff. We're told right there. It was their possessions. It was their belongings. And they freely, willingly sold what was theirs so that others could have their needs met. Not communism. This is the fruit of God's spirit. So loosening the hands of these believers from the things of this world that they were eager to bless those who were in need. They, they had taken to heart the teaching of Jesus himself because Jesus said, and it's recorded in Luke's gospel. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Luke records Jesus saying in chapter, Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus said to his disciples, sell your possessions and give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. At this point in the weeks right after Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven. Of course, the gospel of Luke was not in existence at that point, but I trust this teaching of Jesus was in circulation. And so these disciples leapt into action. There was not a needy person among them, we're told. In chapter four, verse 34, this is my last reference to chapter four. I don't know why I keep pointing to you because it's not like it's been determined, but I think it's probably gonna be Jason preaching on that. There was not a needy person among them. In a sense, it is, it's a fulfillment of God's will for his covenant people that we read about earlier from Deuteronomy 15, where he said, there should not be a needy person among you. And here, Luke tells us, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And it it is good for all of us who are followers of Jesus to just take stock and ask the question, maybe something good for us to talk about together today. Maybe something, those of you that are going to be here hanging out for dinner after the evening service, maybe here's a question to talk about. Does the way you use your stuff, your possessions and belongings, does it show that you know it's not ultimately your stuff, but that all of it belongs to the Lord? When that paycheck comes or some unexpected sum of money that is not just like, oh, this is nice. This is going to help me with this or that. But that we might think, Lord, what would you have me to do with this? What, what can I eliminate so that I can be more ready to generously meet the needs when it arises within the fellowship? What goods and possessions have you sold lately? so that your brothers and sisters who are in need have what they need. Now, this is is difficult, and there are some complexities to it, which uh, are not expounded upon in this little passage in Acts chapter 2. We see later in the New Testament, there are guidelines, criteria that are implemented about how to care wisely for widows, and there are admonitions about those who are unwilling to work, and there's a difference between someone who is unable to work because of health or some other circumstantial issue, and those who are unwilling, and it's not wise or helpful to help someone who is unwilling to work. So there are other teachings in the Bible. Some of you are familiar with a a good and wise book called When Helping Hurts 
which has some wisdom on how to discern these important matters. But let's, let's not be so careful about all those possible distinctions and clarifications. Let's not be so careful that we don't allow this passage to remind us that one test of love for each other is not simply that we could be friendly together for an hour or an hour and a half on Sunday morning, or even that we would pray regularly for one another. Those are tests of love, and those are good things for us to do. But how, how are we bearing someone else's burdens? How are we inconveniencing ourselves and our time and of our finances to the blessing of those of our brothers and sisters who have need? I believe it does require, at a practical level, it does require both vigilance and vulnerability. Uh, these Christians knew, it seems to, I mean, they, they sprung, when anyone had a need, it seems like they knew what the needs were, right? They, they had moved beyond surfacey relationships to actually being able to see and address and talk about needs that there were in the community. And there was vulnerability meaning people who had needs, like really legitimately had a need, they didn't just answer, how are you doing, with fine. Sometimes there is a a prideful embarrassment, I think, in being resistant uh, to making a need known that may stifle the willing generosity of the people of God. Sometimes, have you ever had this situation where you hear about them? Well, after the fact, you hear about a need, and you're like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me you need it? I wish I would have known. We don't want to hear phrases like that in the family of God. I wish you would have told me. Why didn't you tell me? We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think. We don't want to have that among us because we want to have a community where we're vigilant to see needs, to be on the lookout for needs, and where we're humble enough and willing to say, I have a need. This was the fruit of the people of God being joined together in unity and love And it's good for us. It's a blessing for us to seek to excel in this. Jesus himself said, it's recorded in the book of Acts, that Jesus himself said, and you know these words, of course, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It does not say in the word of God, it is more burdensome to give than to receive. Blessed, blessed to give. And these saints were experiencing that blessing. They had all things in common. And I, and I think we do experience that blessing. I, I have more to say about this, but I think our congregation is to be commended in many ways in this regard. Uh, whether it happens in that just the, the organic level, as you hear a need and you, you just get to work and take care of that need and nobody really hears about it, or whether it's in the more formal ways as we have our deacons fund, which is as I understand, generously supplied right now to step in and help believers in this congregation who have need, when the Spirit of God dwells among us, there really is no reason for anyone to be in need. Maybe your need isn't money, actually. Clearly, that's what's being discussed here and what's talked about in Acts chapter 2, but your need might be fellowship. Uh, Your need might be prayer or encouragement That's why I prayed earlier, let let there not be a needy saint among us for some companionship this Thursday. Let's concretely get to work on Acts 2, 44 and 45 this week by making sure through vigilance and through vulnerability that there's not a lonely saint on Thursday. 
Let's labor, beloved, to be both vigilant and vulnerable so that we might increasingly be a family where we're all committed to looking after each other to make sure there is not a needy person among us. That can really happen by the power of God's spirit. And we're moved to pursue it because that's how the Lord Jesus has so richly and generously and faithfully provided for us. Point number two, we've got an awesome Jesus. It was the grace of our Lord Jesus that inspired this awesome generosity. I, what, you perhaps might look at the paragraph and say, well, where does it say that exactly? I mean, that sounds nice, and I, I agree with you generally, but I don't see that being mentioned here in the passage. Well, it says there in verse 44, who are these people? All who believed. They believed. And what had they come to believe? Well, the short answer is they'd come to believe in Jesus. But let's, let's fast forward a couple of decades from this point in Acts chapter 2 to when the Apostle Paul wrote his second letter to the church in Corinth. If you want, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8, you know, hold your spot there in Acts 2, or you can just listen. But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul recounts an expression of some pretty awesome generosity. He is, in the context, he is seeking to stir up the Corinthians to generosity, and he does so by telling them about a particularly outstanding expression of generosity among the Christians in Macedonia. And so he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a, listen to this. This is awesome. You would affirm, this is awesome, okay. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's something awesome. That's something that would make even unbelieving people like, what is going on? This is crazy. Who has a category? I don't have a category, frankly, sadly, in my experience, for severe affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, and wealth of generosity. Just put all that together. That's a category explosion in my mind. That's what was going on amongst these believers in Macedonia. It was their joy to give so much that Paul says in verse 4, they were begging earnestly in their affliction and in their poverty. They were begging earnestly to have the privilege of taking part in relieving the needs of their family in Christ. And in this particular passage, it actually wasn't the immediate needs of their brothers and sisters that they were dwelling among. It was needs hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. They're like, we're going to give to this need in Jerusalem to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away. But that's the generosity that the Lord was inflaming amongst them. This is one of the most humanly inexplicable passages in the Bible, I think. That's a grandiose statement, but I, I just said it, so that's, I'll stick to it. And at this point, Paul moves from recounting that expression of awesome generosity to specifically exhorting the Corinthians to excel in that same kind of generosity. And in doing so, he shares the secret, the secret 
for the Macedonians, the secret for these early believers in Acts chapter 2, and the secret for us to increasingly become this kind of people. He says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 8, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, this grace of giving. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Here's the secret. We already heard it read earlier in the service. It's not really a secret. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does this generosity come from? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus that these disciples in Acts chapter 2 had come to believe in. Right? We, we remember the context. Do you remember the context of this paragraph in Acts 2? These believers had just been cut to the heart over their spiritual poverty. They had killed their own Messiah, the very one who had come to rescue them. They had put him to death. And the Holy Spirit pierced them with that conviction. And they came to grips with how utterly ruined they were before a holy God, how impoverished they were before his righteousness, whom they had offended by their sin. But that very Lord who they had condemned actually had come to shower them with grace unmeasured, grace upon grace. When they were in their wretched sin, when they were blind, when they were pitiable, when they were bankrupt in soul, poor and needy, crucifying and shaming their only hope of rescue, the Lord Jesus came to meet them in that extreme poverty and share his deep wealth with them. And that's not just their story. But if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, that's our story, right? That's our experience of grace. When we were completely devoid of righteousness, when we were poor, when we were bankrupt in spirit, without God and without hope in the world, destined for only this inheritance to experience the unbridled fury of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger at that very time, the Lord Jesus came and he gave it all for us. He paid it all. He, from all eternity, the Lord Jesus was the infinitely rich one, infinitely rich in the fellowship of his father. Yet he, the theme of heaven's praises, came down clothed in frail humanity. He left the splendor of heaven for the squalor of a feeding trough. He left the unending glory of heavenly bliss for the shame and agony of a Roman cross. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He left the incessant praise of angels to experience insults and persecution at the hands of lawless people. Left his father's side to endure the full fury of his father's righteous wrath against sin. He paid it all. And why did he do it? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he did it for our sake. He did it for your sake, Tom Sott. 
He did it for you, Jim Widener. He did it for you, Meredith Finger. Did it for you, Steve Humanek. Did it for us. He did it for our sake. He bore the wrath of God for our sins so that we might have lavished upon us the riches of his perfect record so that we might know real eternal treasures in him. Not just worldly wealth. Not, not false health, wealth, prosperity nonsense that's out there on Christian television and radio. It's a wealth in him. Wealth that leads us to say with King David in the Psalms, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And that compels him to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance because we have the Lord. Kids, slow down. Let me take a, take a sip of water. Talk to the kids. Kids, 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 kids. I love having you here. Love having you here. It's getting to be that time of year, kids, when you're starting to think maybe about Christmas and stuff that you want for Christmas. Yeah, you have some things. Yeah, always can get some in. What did he just ask? Anyway. It's not summer, though. It's, it's, we're moving to the holidays. And kids, you're thinking about Christmas, maybe some stuff that you want. And it's not bad to want things. And it's nice to get, I, I trust you have loving parents. They will do their best to give you the things that you want. But I, I want you to understand, kids, there is no greater gift. There's no greater thing than we can have than to know God, the God who made you. He made you for a relationship with himself. And when you sinned against him, kids, he so loved you. He's so good that he gave of himself so that you could have that good thing, so that you could have him forever and ever and ever. He's better than all that you're going to get for Christmas. And you know how I know that? Because you don't even remember probably the stuff that you got last Christmas. It's not even exciting to you anymore. But God... He just keeps on going, going, going. He never changes. He's always the same. He's always amazing and unbelievable. The best gift that you could possibly have is to know God. And Jesus has made it possible for you to know him. That is our great hope, is it not? Children, big and old, children of God. This is an inheritance so beautiful that the Apostle Paul could say that he counted everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is a treasure of such inestimable value that Jesus likened it to finding a, a, a treasure hidden in a field and then seeing such value and treasure in that field that he went and sold everything that he would have to buy that field. That's how valuable Jesus and his kingdom is. A, 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 a salvation so satisfying that the prophet Habakkuk could say, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail. The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Talking, no presence under the tree. Everything ripped away. Habakkuk could say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's the treasure that our God is. Treasure so great that, that the writer of Hebrews, I love the logic. Do you remember this passage in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13? 
the writer of Hebrews, he's, he's landing the plane. He's given all kinds of various instructions. And he tells them there at the end of, uh, of Hebrews, uh, it just went, <laughs> it's not in my notes. And that verse just escaped me. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, do you remember what he said? This is wonderful logic. Be freed from the love of money. Be content. You have, a, you have very little, be content. You have a lot, don't get so excited about the having a lot. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's how great he is. As one author has put it, the man who has God in everything has no more than the man who has God alone. And that's the wealth and the splendor that we've been brought into at Christ's expense because he was willing to impoverish himself because of the lavish, outrageous generosity that we have found in Jesus. That leads us to think differently about this world and the things of this world. If you're here this morning and you've not found this treasure in God, it's very easy to find, actually. It's, it's impossible and very easy at the same time. It's impossible because the Bible actually says, and I'm just going to be honest with you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's important that we be honest. The Bible says, actually, your soul is so spiritually dead that you could never w- even want this treasure on your own. You couldn't want it unless the Holy Spirit was actually at work in you. But if you're hearing me talk and say, That's a, that is a wonderful love, a, a Jesus who would give of himself that way and bring me into a relationship with him. If that sounds appealing to you, it is so easy. All you have to do is confess, I am in fact bankrupt spiritually. I've got nothing and I long to receive Jesus as the one who died for me, who rose for me, who can bring me into the family of God, into this wonderful relationship with this God. He can do that for you today if you would call out to him and pray that he would rescue you. He will do that for you. Call upon him today. And for those of us who have, it just changes the way we relate to this world and its things. We can sing with sincerity, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Not because we have to, not drearily, but liberatingly, eagerly. He's given so much for us. He's given so much to us. What of our possessions would we want to withhold for his sake from our dearly loved brothers and sisters who've also come to share in that grace of Jesus and have a need. That's what makes the family of God zealous for good works, that experience of God's grace to us in Jesus. And all this goodness of Jesus, all this grace of Jesus gets demonstrated and celebrated when the saints are together having all things in common, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's why giving is so commended by Jesus and the apostles. That's why the Bible has so much to say about what we do with our resources because in a unique and powerful way, what we do with our earthly wealth showcases the heart of our Savior and of the salvation that he offers the world. 
And, and beloved, I, again, I said I would come back to this, and I would be remiss if I did not. We have tasted much of this grace among us. This congregation is to be commended as one that I believe from what I can see, and I can see our weaknesses, okay? So I'm not, no one's ever accused me of always being a rosy-eyed optimist. That has just not ever been said of me. I'm not proud of that, but that's just true of me. But I can tell you with sincerity, we've experienced a whole lot of the grace of God in this area. Not just in our regular giving to the church budget, which has been awesome in its own right. Not just in the way gifts are marked for the deacon's fund, though that has been generous, or for orphan care. And beloved, if you got a heart to care for the orphan, we've got money to help. We've got, we've got money to help you in that need. But not just in that, but in the everyday unseen ways that you tend to one another's needs without anything being recognized or noticed or even really thinking about it as a thing, you just do it. Somebody's struggling. Let's get a meal train going. We were beneficiaries of that grace just over the summer. When I heard it was happening, I'm like, we don't, that's just, that's kind, but like, we don't, we don't need that. And when, I, when we experienced that, it was like, this is more than just food. This is, this is the people of God with us in a time of trial. The generosity of meals prepared and uh, bills paid, stimulus checks. Remember stimulus checks? Remember when that was a big thing, you know, a year or two ago with COVID? And saints just saying, this, I've already been ridiculously blessed. I have no need for this money. Who needs it? Where can I give it? Uh, moves, moving from one place to another, and moves, saints coming along to help with moves, repairs and emergencies, babysitting for one another. This congregation can meet some needs. Praise God for that. Our life together is not perfect, but I do believe it is beautiful, and it is the grace of God that it is so. And so let's see to it, let's see to it that we excel in it all the more. Because our Jesus, our awesome Jesus, he is worthy of it. I read you the verse about sell your possessions. I didn't read you the verse that came right before it, but I should do that before we close. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's all true in Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the one who came when we were enemies and he brought us into his own kingdom by his sacrifice. He's the one who has made God, instead of our judge, our loving heavenly father. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So here, Jesus, again, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. About that passage, Matthew Henry writes this. These believers, actually this is about the Acts passage. This is about some, Matthew Henry said this. I don't know where he said it. These believers were so taken up with the hopes of an inheritance in the other world that this world was as nothing to them. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's make decisions today. Let's make decisions this week with our belongings and with our bank accounts that we'll be thankful for 10,000 years from now. Amen. There's a way to do that. We think about long-term financial planning, and that's a good thing to do too. 
Got people in the congregation can help you with that. But please, and they would say the same. Do not neglect in your long-term financial planning to think about the joy that you're going to know in 10,000 years from investing in the people of God and the kingdom of God. May we excel. We have excelled, I believe, in many ways. May we continue to excel in this grace of giving so that there would not be a needy saint among us because of the grace of God so mightily at work in us and among us through Jesus and through the empowering presence of his spirit. How deserving of praise. How deserving of honor. How deserving of a life poured out. Is it not so, beloved? Let's pray. Oh, I love you, by the way. I should tell you that before I pray. Love you, saints. Father, we thank you uh, for your generosity to us. Who can words fail to convey the, uh, the wonder and the privilege of what it is that you have brought us into and what you spent that we might be brought into it. Uh, it, will, it will be our eternal praise to you. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To him be glory and honor and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore because of the ways that you spent of your wealth in Jesus to make us heirs of eternal life, to bring us into fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Would you... Would you Increase our heart's wonder and affection and gratitude for that. And in faith, may we use what you have so generously given to us on earth to highlight that you are our exceedingly great joy. Whom have we in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing we desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail. You, Lord, are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. May it be increasingly so in our hearts to the glory of your name and for the good of our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.